You are listening to the Kyle Talks Podcast, hosted by Kyle Garlett. Hello, everybody. I am Kyle Garlett, the host of the Kyle Talks Podcast, the originally named Kyle Talks Podcast. And today we are all about the heart. Now, as we do each and every episode, we begin the show by naming our Survivor of the Week. This week's Survivor is the procedure that saved my life and tens of thousands of others, now celebrating its 50th anniversary as a means of successful treatment for heart failure. I am, of course, talking about human-to-human heart transplantation, which happened for the first time on December 3rd, 1967, at Grootschuler Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa, by Dr. Christian Barnard. The patient that received that first heart was 54-year-old Louis Washkansky, a World War II veteran and local grocer who later in life suffered three heart attacks, the last of which resulted in congestive heart disease. His, conge- his condition was incurable and diagnosed as untreatable, except by Barnard, who was, who was head of the Department of Experimental Surgery at the hospital and had been fascinated by the possibilities of heart transplant since he met fellow surgical pioneers Norman Shumway and Walt Lillehay while on residency at University of Minnesota in the 1950s. Barnard approached Wes Kansky and his wife Anne with a radical idea, and although it was a giant leap into the great unknown, they agreed to take it. As Barnard would later write, for a dying man, it is not a difficult decision because he knows he is at the end. If a lion chases you to the bank of a river filled with crocodiles, you will leap into the water, convinced you have a chance to swim to the other side. So a leap they did when on December 2nd, 25-year-old Denise Starval was struck by a drunk driver while crossing the road and later declared brain dead. Her father was told about the idea and asked for permission to use his daughter's heart, and it was granted. Washkansky survived the five-hour procedure and would go on to live another 18 days before dying of pneumonia, which was caused by the anti-rejection drugs needed to keep his body from attacking the new heart. But a human-to-human heart transplant that granted the patient another 18 days of life was considered a success, and it was just the first step. However, the advancements in heart transplantation were slow to develop, and at one point the procedure almost stopped. 1968, the year after Barnard's first successful heart transplant, 104 transplants were performed throughout the world, but only 10 of those patients survived. By 1970, the number of worldwide heart transplants dropped to just 18, as the procedure was deemed too experimental, too costly, too prone to failure, and simply too complicated with factoring all the moving parts, finding a suitable donor, a suitable patient, a skilled surgeon, and a facility equipped with with the requirements for post-transplant. By the late 1970s, 10 years after Barnard and Wyskansky, there were just a handful of transplant centers around the world. The enthusiasm for the procedure, which which was off the charts in the weeks and months following December 3rd, 1967, had seriously waned. That is until 1983, when the anti-rejection drug cyclosporin arrived on the scenes. Success rates skyrocketed after care became simpler and more understood, and patients who had previously been considered too sick for heart transplantation were now accepted into programs. And now here we are, 34 years on from the introduction of cyclosporin, one of the drugs that I currently take, 50 years from the first ever human-to-human heart transplant, and patients don't just live days and weeks and months anymore, but years and decades and many decades. And patients don't just stay alive. They live full and complete active lives, climbing mountains, running marathons, and competing at Ironman triathlons. The miracle of heart transplantation and its 50th anniversary is our Survivor of the Week.
dovetails nicely into this show's hero of the week, or in this case, heroes of the week. Dr. Barnard is, of course, an obvious hero to me and to patients like me and to the greater world of medical science. But this was his world. This was his life. He was a medical explorer and pioneer driven by curiosity, by science, and in no small part, he was driven by a competition to be the first. It was just a month later in January of 1968 that Dr. Norman Shumway, former colleague and now rival of Barnard, performed a human-to-human transplant at Stanford University on a patient that also lived for 18 days. Dr. Barnard is without question a hero, and I'm going to talk a little, little more in depth about him later in the show. But our heroes of the week are the two people and the two families that participated in this world-changing event that hadn't been seeking it. They were no doubt scared and even terrified by the complete absence of knowledge in this great unknown. They were also facing grief, and in the case of one family, sudden and unexpected grief and loss. I'm talking about Louis Weshkansky facing the end of his life, looking at the final days with his wife and family and having to say goodbye to them, and bravely choosing to become an experiment, not knowing if it would rob him of remaining days, result in extra pain and suffering, or lead to him becoming nothing more than a ghoulish footnote in medical history. Louis Weshkansky and his wife are worthy heroes of the week. As is Denise Darval, the first ever heart donor, her mother Myrtle, who was killed instantly in the accident that eventually led to Denise's death, and her father Edward, who gave doctors permission to use her heart. Denise, or Denny as she was known to her family and friends, was 25 years old. She was a banking clerk and the family of five's primary breadwinner. She was the older sister of two younger brothers. And it was the car that she was able to buy for the family that took four of them to a friend's house on Saturday afternoon, December 2nd, 1967. On the way there, they decided to stop and pick up a cake because you don't show up empty-handed. So pulling over to the side of the road across the street from Wrench's Bakery, Denny and her mom got out of the car, crossed the road to get the cake, and then as they were walking back across the road to return to their car, they were struck by a driver who had just sped past a truck that had obstructed his view of the two women crossing the road. Myrtle was killed instantly. Denise suffered a fractured skull and severe brain trauma and was taken by ambulance to Grootskur Hospital, where doctors worked to revive her for several hours. Once they determined that there was nothing more they could do, there was no more brain function and it was not going to return, they told her father, Edward, that although there was nothing more they could do to save her life, there was a man in the hospital who might be saved by her heart. For four minutes, Edward Darvall thought about his decision, and he would later say that for those four minutes, all he did was think about his daughter. He remembered a birthday cake she made for him that she had carved a heart into. He thought about how with her first paycheck from the bank, she bought him a bathrobe. Thinking about his daughter and how she lived her life, he began to cry, and then he went to the doctors and told them, quote, if you can't save my daughter, you must try and save this man. And so it was done. Denise Ann Darvill's heart was donated to Louis Weshkansky. Also of note, her kidney went to save a 10-year-old boy. Weshkansky emigrated to South Africa from Lithuania when he was just nine years old. His father was a grocer, and Washi, as he was called by his friends, followed his dad into the family business. An avid weightlifter and youth wrestling coach, Washi also did his duty as any good South African man did in that day and volunteered for the South African Armed Forces in 1940, fighting against the Germans and Italians in North Africa during World War II. Ever resourceful, Washi also proved to be exceedingly popular by his trench mates and fellow soldiers when he figured out a way to make his own beer using orange peels and raisins. Said to be loved by everyone who knew him, Louis Weshkansky had his first heart attack in 1960. He also became diabetic around that time, and by 1967, 
his health was in a steep decline, and it was unclear if he'd make it until the end of the year. That's when he was referred to Dr. Christian Barnard, who approached him with the idea of becoming the world's first heart transplant recipient. And Louis' wife said at that time, quote, My husband showed such a fighting spirit that the medical experts approached him and told him about transplantation and what it would entail. He accepted the opportunity immediately and didn't even need the two days Professor Barnard offered him to think about it. By this time, his life was hanging by a thread. He'd been dying for two months already and knew the operation was his only chance at a longer life. I was scared, said Anne, but my husband's faith in the medical personnel inspired me too. He kept saying, I'll beat the odds, I'll pull through. On December 2nd, the accident happened that took the life of Denise Darville. On December 3rd, Louis Weshkansky received her heart. And 50 years later, Denny, Washi, and the families that loved and supported them and helped change the world are our heroes of the week. Heart transplantation and the idea of another person's heart beating inside the chest of someone to keep them alive captures the imagination. It's why we've seen heart transplant and its many variations played out on so many movies and television shows. It's captivating. But it's only big and interesting because it's also a reality. Prior to that first transplant in 1967, the media gave such little notice to it that there wasn't a single journalist or photographer present when Dr. Barnard walked out of the operating theater having just made history. In fact, the word didn't get out until Barnard himself called the medical superintendent of the hospital to confirm that no, this wasn't a dog heart transplant, which had been done a number of times, including by Barnard himself. This time it was human being to human being. Within an hour, South African Prime Minister John Vorster had heard about the procedure, and over the next several days, the journalists of the world invaded Cape Town, wanting to speak to the man behind the surgical mask. As Barnard famously quipped, On Saturday, I was a surgeon in South Africa, very little known. On Monday, I was world-renowned. The world was, of course, fascinated with the science and almost science fiction behind the first transplant. But Barnard himself was a fascinating and engaging man who also helped drive the immediate media frenzy, as well as the long-term celebrity that followed with his personality. He was charming and charismatic with boyish good looks, and he capitalized on becoming the world's first true celebrity surgeon, appointing his own publicist and official photographer, something that simply was not done back in 1967. The accolades came and were deserved, but there were also moral apprehensions for many people in society, and Barnard was subjected to much criticism, claiming he was playing God. Some of that was a lack of understanding of the procedure. Much of it was related to all the things we ascribe specifically to the heart, like emotions and feelings, and love. In reality, the heart is just a pump, it's a muscle. But human beings are connected to their hearts in ways that they will never be connected to their kidneys or livers. We place our hand over our hearts during the national anthem. At wedding ceremonies, we talk about giving our hearts to one another. We're heart sick or heartbroken or heart strong, our hearts sore and our hearts can sink. So the idea of putting someone's heart into the body of another carries with it a different emotional response than with other organs. There was also a challenge to heart transplantation at the time in the U.S. because organs couldn't be harvested until the heart actually stopped beating. Brain death was only part of it back then. Whole body death was required before organs could be collected. The heart itself also had to stop, which often meant that it was no longer suitable for transplantation. The laws in South Africa were more liberal, and at the time, many felt that because of that, the doctors there had too much power to choose who lives and who dies. 
Of course, what we know about brain death now and the laws and practices governing the harvesting of organs in today's world have changed significantly. Barnard's decision to stop the heart with a shot of potassium, paralyzing it until he could put it into Wachkansky's chest, actually helped preserve the heart and make it more viable. In amongst his celebrity and high-profile personal life, he hung out with royalty and heads of state and had marriages to a young heiress and then later a young model, Barnard continued to advance the cause of transplantation, designing the idea of a heterotopic transplant, or piggyback transplant, in which the diseased heart remains in the patient's body while the donor heart is added, creating a double heart. Barnard performed the first successful such transplant in 1974 and would go on to perform 49 transplants like that, seeing success rates that regularly outpace the rest of the world's survival rates by more than 20%. Barnard also pioneered many of the surgical techniques used on children with congenital heart disease, and he performed hundreds of heart surgeries on children in third-world countries whose parents were too poor to afford the procedures. Barnard was forced to retire from active surgery in 1983 because of rheumatoid arthritis, but he remained active as a consultant for a number of transplant centers around the world, he created the Christian Barnard Foundation, which continued his work in poor countries. And the last 10 years of his life, before he died in 2001, he became dedicated to promoting preventative medicine. His personal credo in his final years was, I saved the life of 150 people through heart transplantations. If I had cared about preventative medicine earlier, I would have saved 150 million people. For those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast, you know that for, for weeks I've been trying to get on my friend who's a heart transplant coordinator. Her name is Gina Ferguson. She lives in Chicago. Uh, she's uh, an, an incredible person. And finally, we were able to connect this week. Now, please forgive my technical inadequacies. This is, is not the greatest audio in the world because I am still trying to figure out how to do recording phone calls between the United Kingdom and Chicago, Illinois. But... The content is great. She is so good. She she she's got so much great information. If you find uh, heart transplantation a, a tenth of as interesting as I find it, uh, suffering through my inability to to get a good recording, uh, I believe it's going to be well worth it. So uh, I've got that now, and so please, my apologies, my apologies to Gina for uh, for not doing such a great job, and my apologies to you. But Gina is absolutely fantastic. Gina Ferguson, thank you so much for joining me. How are things in Chicago? Great, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I uh, We've had an unseasonably warm fall, but today we woke up to 30-degree temps and 20-mile-an-hour winds, so winter is definitely upon us. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's, it's, it's Christmas season. It's, it feels more like Christmas when it's cold and snowy. Yes, definitely. Okay, so this week we just had a big anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the first human-to-human heart transplant. Um, you uh, have a, a bit of a connection to the heart transplant world. Um, why don't you tell me uh, how you got into that and, and, and what you did? Sure. Um, I have a nursing background. I've been a nurse since 1992. And um, throughout my career, I have always worked with cardiac surgery patients. Um, then around 1999, I changed jobs and began working at a large academic medical center um, right in Chicago. 
at that time, I worked in their cardiac surgery intensive care unit, and we took care of patients that had many, many types of cardiac surgery procedures. At that time, uh, the hospital that I was working at had not had a heart transplant program, but years later, they recruited uh, a, a very famous cardiac surgeon um, from another uh, academic medical center in the U.S., and at that point, the vision uh, for him was to start a heart transplant program. I was asked to be the one of two heart transplant coordinators to help start that program. Um, and so that's when it all began. Um, like I said, I didn't have any experience at that point uh, in cardiac transplant. And so I was fortunate um, to be included a sort of a, you know, ground up, starting a new program um, and learning everything um, about um, what it takes to start a heart transplant program, which, um, as you can imagine, um, there are um, many, many behind the scenes um, uh, steps that you have to follow and boxes you have to check in order to become um, a, a successful heart transplant program. So that's how it started out. So for me, as a patient, of my heart transplant coordinator was always kind of the face of the program. Uh, she was the person that I spoke to the most most often. She was the person that I spoke to when I first showed up for my appointments. And then after seeing the doctor, she was the one who kind of closed things out. This is what we've agreed to do. These are, these are the plans coming up. This is the next time we're going to see you. And until then, this is what you should be doing. Uh, I assume that it's pretty similar from transplant center to transplant center. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I met the patients um, early on in the process, um, as you know, but many of your listeners don't know what, what it takes um, in order to work a patient up for a heart transplant. Um, obviously, it's not the, uh, you know, the first choice in a treatment plan. Um, it comes much later on um, when patients are suffering from heart failure. So um, it's really after a very extensive discussions um, with a patient's cardiologist, and then once the transplant surgeon gets involved, um, once, once that process begins, that's where the heart transplant coordinator, um, at least in the center I worked at, and I would imagine in most centers, like you said, um, that's where we become involved. So very, very early on in the process, um, and, and also um, we are involved in the discussion um, to determine if patients are candidates for heart transplantation. So we're even involved um, way before um, we meet some of our patients. So, so in terms of when, when somebody's going through the things, like I know I had to go through a, like a psychological exam, um, you know, there's a full physical workup. They want to make sure that you've got support, things like that. So you're a part of that team that decides if somebody is listed or not? Yes, that's correct. It's a, a large multidisciplinary team that um, meets often. Um, when I was a heart transplant coordinator, we had a formal meeting once a week. Um, but there uh, were many, many discussions um, every day um, with members of that team. Um, and you're correct. We had um, psychologists that were on staff just for the heart transplant program. Um, we are talking to infectious disease specialists, 
If there are any other types of comorbidities, for example, if someone has diabetes um, or um, um, some other issues with any other organ. In my case, I had a history of cancer, which no doubt would have been uh, a part, exactly. of the, part of the process. Exactly. We would have an oncologist sitting at that table, um, really looking over everything, as you know, um, from A to Z, um, which involves lots and lots of lab work, um, tests, um, it, you know, exams, CAT scans, chest x-rays, etc. cetera. Uh, I always called it the million-dollar workup, um, <laughs> though this day and age in healthcare, it's probably more than a million-dollar workup. So... My, my most memorable moment with my heart transplant coordinator was that moment she called me to tell me that they had a heart. I know you've gotten a chance to, to be that person to, to, to tell the patient. What, I what, have. What happens, ahead, what, ha- what happens leading up to that? Because, you know, the patient's sitting at home. We have no idea. But, but there's a lot of things that happen between the time that um, a, a car wreck happens and, and somebody is declared brain dead and then you make that call to the patient, hey, we have your heart, get here to the hospital. Yeah, many, many hours have passed um, uh, from the time of death of a donor. Um, Heart transplant coordinators are typically on call 24-7, 365 days a year. At the time uh, when I was a heart transplant coordinator in the beginning of the program, there were just two of us. So as you can imagine, that's a lot of on-call hours. Um, I'll be honest, that was always my favorite part, was to make that phone call. Um, As you mentioned earlier, uh, heart transplant coordinators get very, very close with their patients, and I love to make that call. It was even better um, to let someone know in person uh, if they were in the hospital. But like you said, um, what go, so what happens from the time of, um, uh, of a deceased donor to the point that uh, we make that phone call? And it's really variable. Um, you know, some patients that become organ donors um, are not immediately uh, brain dead upon arrival to the hospital. They may have spent anywhere from hours to days in the intensive care unit, depending on what their injuries were. And once a patient is declared brain dead, there are still many, many tests and exams that need to be done at that point. Um, Well, there are tests and exams that need to be done before that to determine brain death. Um, And then once brain death is established, um, then there's a process that... um, the um, organ procurement organizations. Um, We all have a local organ procurement organization um, that comes in at that time um, to sort of, is you know, take over the care of the donor. Um, And at that point, they're doing um, lots of tests, lots of uh, blood work. Um, They need to make sure that the organs, and at this point, it's not just the heart. Uh, the organ procurement organization is really attempting to place as many organs as they can at that point. Um, so as you can imagine, that process doesn't take um, just an hour or two. Sometimes it's up to 24, 36 hours where um, the organ procurement organization is at the bedside with a brain dead donor doing all the necessary testing um, for each and every organ. 
And at that point, um, once they've done uh, the testing and um, they've determined what organs can be placed, at that point they will start um, they will start that process where organs are now allocated to recipients. Um, and that process there is all through the United Network of Organ Sharing. Um, it's, it's a database um, that uh, it, it generates a, sort of a ranked list of transplant candidates uh, based on multiple factors uh, such as blood type, uh, medical urgency, waiting time, geography. Um, so they're doing that behind the scenes. And uh, at that point, if one of those matches is a patient of mine, let's say at the time, mm -hmm. then I would get paged. Uh, and that could be at any point in the day. It could be um, 7 a.m. and it could be 3 a.m. And then at that point, um, that's where uh, I would come in at and it, it, like I said, it's all computer generated. So I would log on the computer and at that point, I could see everything about that donor. It's essentially uh, your medical record in an mm -hmm. electronic format that I could see. It's mm -hmm. everything from uh, the demographics of that deceased donor, uh, medical history, physical history, all the current lab tests, et cetera, um, and other exams that um, are required for uh, heart allocation. And then at that point, um, myself uh, would have a discussion with a heart transplant surgeon who was on call and then determine, is this heart a good match for our recipient? Um, and many, many factors go into that decision as well. How is our recipient? Is he or she in the ICU? Um, you know, the weight, the height, um, so many factors um, that I can probably sit and talk for hours about it, but really, really take, um, you know, the experience of a, a heart transplant surgeon um, and so, so much thought goes into placing the right heart with the right recipient because the goal is uh, to return to as normal function as possible mm -hmm. um, and, and have a good life. So right. in other words, we don't want to just put any heart in any recipient. Right. And so then uh, once you've determined that person, you get to place that phone call? Yeah. So again, there's a lot of planning at that point. So uh, if myself and the surgeon um, during that phone call um, decided that um, this heart is going to our recipient. Um, at that point, depending if, if that patient is in the hospital or at home, um, I'm at that point probably going to um, double check our recipient's um, health condition, um, either call the hospital, um, look up some latest labs, and try to get an idea of timing. I don't know what the timing was for your transplant, but again, this is very, very early on in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so if a patient lived far away, I would certainly make that call sooner than later. If they were in the hospital, I might wait a little bit to have a little bit more information as far as timing. Um, as you know, it's an anxiety-provoking moment, right. um, waiting once you get that call. But 
yeah, typically after it's decided that um, this heart is going to this patient, um, then the phone call came from me, which, like I said, was the best part of my job. Yeah, I received my phone call at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, got to the hospital by 5 o'clock, and they were taking me into the OR by 8 o'clock. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, it does happen like that, mm -hmm. but there are times where I have called patients to come in, um, and they've sat uh, 12, 18, up to 20 hours. Because um, perhaps the donor... Um, um, still needed tests for other organs, maybe um, uh, another um, liver team needed mm -hmm. additional testing. And so um, no organs can be placed until everybody is ready, meaning every uh, organ team, um, we all arrive typically together. Um, and so sometimes there is a long wait, and that can, that can be yeah. very stressful on a patient. I, one of the things that still, you know, I mean, obviously, having been the patient of a big part of uh, a transplant, I'm still just kind of boggled by, by the coordination between so many moving parts, all the different teams from all the different hospitals, all converging and, and, and getting the patient. I mean, it's just, it's just really, it's, 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 it's almost kind of a beautiful dance that you guys perform to, to everybody comes together like that. It's really an unbelievable process. Uh, I would set up shop at my kitchen table with uh, my laptop, my phone, my pager, um, turn on my lights, make a pot of coffee, um, and my phone and pager were nonstop um, until we deployed our team. Um, so many phone calls. And really, you know, sometimes I don't think there's enough credit given to the organ procurement organizations, uh, the staff that are at the bedside of the donor, they are um, uh, taking care of someone who is clinically brain dead um, and, and oftentimes trying to keep that person alive. Uh, when, when someone's brain dead, you know, that's uh, uh, physiology, uh, that's not normal, right? right. Uh, and so our organs are trying to, um, to die at the same time. And so they're trying to keep uh, a, a brain-dead patient alive. They're also dealing with um, extremely sad loved ones, so they have family at the bedside. And they're also trying to place multiple organs across multiple states sometimes and talking with multiple teams um, and then also working with the staff at that local hospital. So I oftentimes don't think they get enough credit because they really do make it happen. They're there from, um, from really the time of brain death when organ donation um, is um, a possibility. Oftentimes they'll even come before it's been decided uh, and they are there till the very, very end. So they really do an amazing job. It's just really, it's such a cool thing to be a part of. And, uh, you know, obviously I was so lucky uh, to be the, the patient who, was, who survived because uh, people like you. Um, a couple of questions. One of the questions I had from a, from a listener who actually is, is currently waiting for heart transplant, he wanted to know the, the, the one thing that you had observed in patients that they could do while they were waiting for transplant to get them best prepared for that day and then, uh, and, and then for success beyond that. Yeah, so that's different for everybody. I think what's most important is that you try to live 
as normal a life as possible. And I know that's different for everybody. Some patients are waiting in the hospital, which is very difficult. Some are at home, um, but have multiple, um, you know, clinic visits, um, uh, lab work, and are, they're trying to work, but it's it's become very difficult. So it's really different for everyone. I would say, you know, whatever it is that can keep your mind off your illness and this sometimes very long wait, whether it's, you know, hobbies, spending time with family, friends, and certainly asking a lot of questions, um, and becoming close with your transplant coordinator um, to help relieve any anxiety you may have. Um, I, I've often heard many, many times from many patients that waiting was certainly the hardest part. And so I think if you communicate with your team um, regarding uh, the wait time and so that you or, or, or your listeners who are waiting have realistic expectations, um, based on blood type, body size, and location, um, you know, your transplant center will most likely be able to tell you that you probably won't get a transplant within the next week. Um, but they certainly don't have a crystal ball. Um, and sometimes that was frustrating for us too, because we wanted to give that answer, you know, when will it be? Um, and I've had patients where we thought, my gosh, they'll probably wait three to six months and they were transplanted within a week and vice versa. Um, you know, we thought maybe someone would be transplanted a little bit sooner, um, but ended up being a longer wait time. And as you know, that is um, the unfortunate part of transplant um, is that someone has to die in order for this miracle to happen. Um, and and sometimes patients struggle with that as well. So it I know it seems like um, there's nothing... Um, in their control. Um, but I would say communicating with your team is probably best. Um, and certainly, uh, reaching out to any other member of the team if needed, such as the psychologist, if someone's having anxiety about the weight or, you know, social services, if someone's, um, worried about medication coverage, et cetera. So, really using your team to your advantage um, and getting to know each and every one of them. Yeah, something you said about becoming close to your team. It really was, for me, um, that well, certainly the day of the transplant, to see friendly faces, to, to feel comfortable, to feel like I was, I, I was in the hands of friends. Um, that, that really uh, eased, uh, eased the, the pressure and the, and the fears on the day of transplant. And even leading, leading up to transplant, like you said, um, you know, I still lived a normal life. My, my weight on the list was five and a half years. Right. And I, and I knew it was going to be that long. Um, I, 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 I had the time to give. I was, you know, I was uh, living at home and, and, and healthy and still working. So I hadn't taken this major diversion from living a normal life. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you go into a shell and live like a heart patient for five years, it's a much harder transition to go back into regular life. Right, right. And you know, and you brought up a good point. Sometimes patients get so close with their team that um, they have a hard time going back to a more normal life after transplant. Um, they've spent a lot of time in the hospital, they feel somewhat secure and safe around us. Um, and then when you sort of let them go like a bird, um, that flight can be a little bit scary. Yes, I, I remember. <laughs> The first time I, when they were letting me go from the hospital and they 
were telling me to go home. You know, I'd been in the hospital for a week, and 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 I was terrified because there was no longer going to be a heart monitor on my uh, on uh-huh. me, and there were no longer going to be nurses to be able to hear if my heart stopped beating. They right. were like, "Don't worry, your heart's not going to stop beating." And I'm like, "How do you right. know?" And there's like, yeah. "Trust us, yeah. we know. We know what we're doing." Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's like. I imagine it's 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 not unlike when uh, somebody's handed a, their new baby. Okay, go home. This is yours Good now. Luck. And, you, and you're yeah. just like, wait a second. Yeah, yeah that exactly. was how I felt with my heart. <laughs> yeah, and there were I had I had taken care of patients who had spent months and months in the ICU. So very very difficult transition to go from really twenty four seven monitoring, uh, friendly faces. That sort of security blanket. Um, to now being discharged to home. So that was always a difficult transition for patients. Indeed. Well, so, hey, Gina, I really appreciate you joining me. I do want to uh, mention one more thing about Gina. Um, so Gina, obviously, uh, great commitment to heart transplantation, uh, but, but you, uh, you, you like other organs as well, from what I understand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are also a kidney donor, and you donated a kidney to your dad in 2012, and That's so correct. so five years now, and he's doing great. He is, yeah. It's uh, been a little over five and a half years. I just saw him on Thanksgiving. He feels good. He looks good. Uh, sometimes I forget um, that I gave away my kidney, um, but he always reminds me um, and is certainly grateful for it every day. So um, it's something I would certainly do again, only um, I, I don't have any more left to give. Well, and something to point out, too, since since you did that, you um, you, you, you swum across uh, Lake Michigan as part of a relay team. Is that correct? This was that was post your kidney donation. Yes. Yes, that was post-kidney donation. You, you've also, I, I know you did tri, uh, triathlons prior to that and, and the Ironman. You're an Ironman finisher, but you've also uh, taken up skiing. So so somebody out there who's thinking about donating their kidney but maybe concerned about the kind of life they can live on the other side, I think you're an example that you can live, uh, well, a completely normal and active life. Yeah, not only normal and active, um, and certainly, I'm, you know, it's probably different for everyone. Um, I I feel like I um, I have a better life. Um, my heart is fuller than it ever had been. Um, I didn't feel like a hero or a lifesaver, um, but more like a better version of myself. Well, speaking as uh, one of the patients who've benefited from heart transplant. Uh, I would say that there is no question that you are a hero. Uh, there are so many people involved in in this miracle of life uh, that are heroes, and uh, and you are one of them. I really appreciate you joining us uh, for this uh, uh, Christian Bernard anniversary uh, edition of the Kyle Talks podcast, uh, all the way from Chicago. Thanks, Gina. Thank you, Kyle. Again, my apologies to everyone for the poor quality of that audio. I won't be blasting any music until you have a chance to turn your volumes back to a reasonable level uh, before here the end of the show. Thank you very much again to Gina for her uh, joining me the other night, late night, uh, right after work for her, uh, after midnight here in the UK. Um, Following up on what she was talking about in terms of being a living donor, uh, please, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a, there's a great need, obviously, for kidney transplants out there. 
Uh, it is something that that I may face in the future. It's not uncommon for for transplants of other organs to have to deal with kidney transplantation down the road because of all the medications that we're on. Um, you know, I'm uh, 11 plus years now uh, after transplant. My kidneys have taken a beating from all the medications. Uh, certainly no regrets. I would do it over, all over again in an instant, but there is the possibility that uh, that I will find myself on a kidney transplant list down the road, as will many other people who have had transplants. Um, but uh, you can save a life and still live your full, complete life as Gina is doing. Uh, and please... Take this opportunity right now to talk to your family and friends about your wishes to be an organ donor. Uh, Lord knows the organs are needed here on earth. No reason for you to take them where you're going after death. Uh, the, the one thing that's going to happen to all of us is death, but there's no reason why when that day happens, we can't pass along life to others. Uh, what a wonderful way to go out. Please explore that options with your family, with your friends. Uh, sign up uh, online become an organ donor, make that check that check that box on your on your driver's license. Please do that. That is going to do it for me, but I want to leave you with one final sound bite. It's a clip from Dr. Christian Bernard himself talking about what defines life. It will surprise you if I tell you that for me it's much easier to explain to you what death is than to explain what life is. Uh, death is the presence of certain signs which indicate to the doctor that that individual is dead. And it's the same for all individuals. But life differs from individual to individual. What do you mean when you say I'm alive? What do I mean when I say I'm alive? Life is the joy of living. It's the celebration of being alive. The Kyle Talks Podcast is a 1010 Media Production. Goodbye.